Hello, everybody. Welcome to the August 2017 podcast. Wonderful to have you all along again. Thanks for listening. Now, those of you who, like me, do paid magic shows will, of course, every time that you get an inquiry, have to make a quote. And in the old days, people used to ring to get the information and therefore you used to have to come up with a a figure that you could charge for a show basically off the top of your head. I mean, yes, hopefully you'll have a scheme of charges in mind. You may even have some stuff written down to refer to. But nevertheless, it's still a conversation that you're having. And sometimes under those circumstances, you will quote a figure and the, the person on the other end of the phone goes a little bit quiet. And you often wonder whether the reason that they've gone quiet is because they are perhaps surprised at how much the quote is that you've just made. Now, when people these days make inquiries, they tend to do it by email, of course, or filling in online inquiry forms from your website. And so when you receive that, not only does it give you the opportunity to have a a proper think about, well, okay, how much is the fee going to be for this particular set of circumstances this show presents but when the person when you then send it back the person at the other end has also got time to consider it to think about it and doesn't feel pressured to make an instant decision about whether they want you or whether they don't I mean in the old days with the telephone inquiries people would um, say right well thank you for that um, I'll I'll talk to my husband about it and get back to you which tended to be code for I need to think about this I'm not going to make a decision right now don't know what to think about this fee uh, and they just want to get off the phone basically once they know how much it's going to be of course as I say these days we're where it's not such a an interactive sort of conversation that's going on then people have got time to think about the fee more But there is one element of fees which most people don't, who are making inquiries, this is, most people don't think of doing. But occasionally you'll get someone who tries to negotiate with you. The most common people who do this are people perhaps, let's say, who are running a charity event. Naturally enough, they're trying to keep their costs down. And so they feel that they ought to try and barter or at least negotiate on the fee. But I think the trouble from our point of view is that this puts us into a slightly awkward position. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I've made a quote for my services, then it's something that I feel that is how much I feel I am worth to go out and do the particular show that they want me to do. So if somebody comes back to me either by email or perhaps rings me up and goes, is there any negotiation on this? my reaction is is always the same it's um well no sorry i the price i've given you is the the best price i always give that first and uh, certainly my other clients have always been very happy to pay that price for the for what you've asked me to do uh, but of course obviously if it's outside your your budget then i understand that but um certainly for me that's what i would require in order to come do the show for you so i will never barter or negotiate on the fee that I've already quoted because I feel that if you then say let's say you quote a fee let's say for argument's sake let's say it's 300 pounds and they they say to you oh right a bit more than I wanted to pay can you come down a bit from that and you go oh okay 250 then to my mind anyway that undermines my original quote 
well, if I can do it for 250 why did I quote £300 to start with? I'm not a car salesman or a double glazing salesman. I'm selling my time and my skills. Um, so in a way, either you know what the value of what you do is or you don't. So to me, it seems counterintuitive to then just drop the price because somebody has asked. Now, of course, I'm in a fortunate position that I'm not afraid to lose a booking if I think that the the fee that they want to pay me, if you like, is lower than the one I'm prepared to accept. Um, obviously, some people, that isn't the case. They, they are more um, keen on getting the booking because they really need the money. So it may give you a different perspective. But certainly from where I'm sitting, as it were, uh, at my end of the career, if you like, I don't have to have every booking. And so I can therefore hold out for what I feel I'm worth to go and do the show that they've asked me for. But it's a difficult one, but people can put you under quite a lot of pressure. And it's it's all too easy just to cave in. What I have found is that if you explain that, no, this is the best fee, this is the fee that I charge, my other clients have been happy to pay that. If the person genuinely can't afford it, OK, yes, you will lose the booking. But often the people who try to negotiate you down, it's not that they can't afford it. It's just that they feel that they they have to try to knock you down if they can. Maybe their committee has said, well, why don't you go back to him, see if you can get him to do it for a bit less. So they feel duty-bound to ask. Because on the few occasions where people have tried to knock me down on price, and I've basically said, I'm sorry, no, then they've booked me anyway. Oh, OK, well, I had to ask, didn't I? Is the sort of thing that people say. It's almost as if, with, for some people, negotiating on the price is something that they would do with everything. And so why wouldn't they do it with the magician? So I think when we put in this position, you need to decide in a way just, well, what is your time worth and is it negotiable? I personally don't think that it is, but maybe you have a different view. I've mentioned a little bit before, I believe, that the age that you are can sometimes determine the age group to whom you will appeal the most. If you're an older magician like me, then you will probably appeal to an older audience, not exclusively, but perhaps an older audience will be more drawn to you because you look the age that they are. And similarly, if you're middle-aged or if you're young, there could well be that you're the main people who are interested in you are people of the same roughly age, rough age that you are. And this was actually brought home to me uh, recently when I was having a chat with uh, a guy who... Um, he was born in the early 90s, so he was in his mid-20s. And he was talking about magicians to me. And the magicians that he had particularly enjoyed were Troy and Dynamo. And he said to me, thing is, he said, these young guys, they really brought me back into magic, he said, because I never really looked at magicians before. But these hip guys came along and they were doing all this great magic and I was really interested, and now I'm, I'm really interested in magic generally. So because these younger performers, this, this guy felt, well, they're roughly my age, or perhaps you know he's a little bit younger, but basically he, he saw them as being the younger generation of magicians. The magic they were doing he kind of felt right to him, and they as people he could relate to, and the things they were doing, the way they spoke, and so on and so forth, was very much in tune with what he felt. And I, so I, I thought I'd kind of test him out. And I said to him, oh, I said, uh, well, when I was younger, I said it was people like David Copperfield, who was 
very influential in, in the world. Everybody knew about David Copperfield and the magic that he was doing. And the guy said, who? And I realised, of course, David Copperfield, when he was really at his heyday, when he was in the sense of on television a lot, I mean, he's still a very busy performer now. But in the early days, when he was on television a lot and making a big impression across the whole world, 70s and 80s particularly, this guy wasn't even born. Same with Paul Daniels. Paul Daniels' heyday was pretty much over by the time this, this guy was 10 years of age. So for him, Paul Daniels was not particularly an influence. And, and if he's seen stuff that um, these people did, it would seem to him to be very old-fashioned. Whereas what Troy and Dynamo are doing, to him, was hip, modern, and something that he wanted to be associated with. So I think this, in a sense, um, defines the way that we as magicians are seen, that the the older generation feel more comfortable with an older magician because they feel that he probably seems safer in a way, that he's not going to um, give references to things that they perhaps that they don't understand or use language or that they don't understand or, or speak too quickly because they can't hear properly. And an older person tends to be aware of this more perhaps. Whereas the younger crowd, they want things to be fast. Perhaps they want it to be trendy. They want it to be modern. And they they might naturally assume that younger magicians are going to be more in tune with that. So I think that's quite interesting, really, the way that we can get pigeonholed. But certainly it's very easy to forget that older magicians for the young lay public virtually don't exist unless they happen to see some stuff on YouTube. And it's all the young ones who are having the impact on the lay people or who are in their 20s and below. I must admit I've always been a fan of the business card. It seems perhaps old-fashioned, but business cards are still a really good way, in my view, to get your information out to potentially interested people, particularly when you're you're out performing and, and people want to take away information about you and what you do. When you consider that the, the profligacy of electronic apparatus whether it's phones or anything else that people have with them you would think that there would be and of course there are other ways of giving information and and phones can certainly you know transmit information very quickly and easily to each other and yet there are many situations where the business card actually is a better way for people to keep that information than something electronic and if you think about a business card it's small enough so that it fits in a wallet or a purse or a small pocket in the back of a pair of jeans. It doesn't require electricity to work. You don't have to boot it up. You don't have to make some wireless link in order to read it. If the if the machine software is updating itself, you don't have to wait half an hour before it will allow you to access any of the information. A business card is basically in your face and it's there. And if you think about it, if you go into people's houses, most people somewhere in their house will have a notice board or their fridge on which they have attached all sorts of leaflets or business cards or other bits of information, tickets for things. People still enjoy and find useful physical things that they can pin up somewhere so they know where it where it is. 
And the business card really falls into this. If you hand somebody a business card, they may take it home and think, oh, I'll keep that, I may need that. And they may pin it in, up in their kitchen. You know, and, and it just sits there. And then when they want it, they can instantly look up and find it. And it's also in view the whole time. Something that's hidden away on a phone, on some database somewhere, is not in view. And then when you want to find it, you've got to remember where you put it. Now, that magician, oh, gosh, what was his name? You can't do a search if you don't know the name. So trying to find it on, on a database, on your computer or maybe on your phone might be more difficult than you think. You think you filed it away and you have. You just don't know where to find it now. Technology progresses. You get new versions of things. It may not always be back compatible. So you could lose a lot of the information. Your phone may get stolen uh, and then you lose the information that way if you haven't backed it up. It's, it's not synced with your computer and so on. Whereas the little business card, yes, you can it can be thrown away easily, but equally it can also be put up somewhere and there be therefore be readily accessible. And interestingly, in an area where you would think that the, the business card has long since been sort of cast aside in business circles, is where it's actually still very strong. I attend two um, network lunches every month. These are business lunches where lots of different businesses get together for a couple of hours. They have a meal and everybody talks to everybody else at the table about what they do in their business. The very first thing at each of these luncheons that happens when everybody sits down at the table is that everybody passes a pile of their cards around and everybody takes one of everybody else's cards and goes away with six or seven cards from the people who are sitting with them. And in fact, when somebody occasionally will turn up, either they've forgotten their cards or they didn't realise they were supposed to bring them, it's funny how the rest of the table go, oh, really? You haven't got your cards with you? Oh, dear. You know, it's, it's almost kind of looked down upon because they haven't got a business card with them. Well, again, you would think in this modern age that wouldn't be an issue, but it is. At trade shows, lots of businesses rely on the ease with which you can exchange business cards as a way of getting the information they want about um, other businesses or giving their information over to potential clients. It's still a practical uh, and indeed, in many ways, commercial way of providing your information. And if you think about it, if you're a strolling magician, you're going around tables, you're rushing around, you get to the end of a performance at a table and someone says, oh, um, they want your details. They don't look around and say, could you just Bluetooth over your, your, your um, sort of contact details, are they? They're going to say, oh, have you got a card? And so if you can reach in a top pocket and whip out a business card and give it to them, they take that away. They then have your, all your contact details and then the, the business is done. There's no fiddling around. There's no messing around. There's no wasted time. So that's why I'm a really big fan of business cards. I think they have still have a place to, uh, uh, a part, I should say, to play uh, and a place indeed in, in modern business. And although it's a very old fashioned type of thing to use, I never go out anywhere without them. Now, since I went digital on the 1st of April, um, some of my products, obviously the physical products, were discontinued and cannot be reintroduced because they need special props. But there are others that I have been gradually reintroducing in download formats. And in the last two or three months, I've released several uh, or re-released, I suppose is the correct way to put it, re-released several different items 
that uh, if you go to my website and you look under uh, new releases or latest releases, then you'll you'll find them all listed there. The latest one to um, be added to the list is a children's routine called Hanky Juggling. This is a fantastic commercial fun routine. It lasts about seven minutes or so. It's ideal for the four to seven year old age group. And all it uses is a wand, a 12 inch silk and an unprepared bag and a couple of kids out the audience. And these are all the props that uh, the audience sees and that you need to do this lovely, simple, fun routine. There's lots of audience participation put in, lots of fun with the kids, bits of business, as you would expect. And it's actually quite a strong magic trick too, in which basically a handkerchief is made invisible and it flies through the air and ends up in a bag that a kid is holding and that they've examined and that was empty a few moments before. This is one of my premier e-routine downloads. It costs £10 and you can download the PDF instructions. And on those instructions, there are there is also a link to online video footage of a complete live performance of the actual routine. And this is very helpful because it enables you to, to pick out the lines and the bits of business that will suit you and your personality when you perform the trick. And then the, the main PDF instructions, of course, go through the handling and, and the various things that you need to do to make the trick itself work. So if you're a children's entertainer and you're looking for something that you can put into your act, perhaps for this coming Christmas or even for the summer season, this is a very straightforward trick to do using very few props and it's loads of fun. It's called Hanky Juggling and it's one of my latest releases and it's a premier e-routine download. Now while it's true to say that there are some magicians who basically only do one type of magic, let's say... There are some people who are just mentalists and they don't do anything else. They concentrate on being a mentalist or there are others who are just children's entertainers and so on. But there are others of people such as myself who do more than one different type of type of magic, if you like. I, I'm a strolling magician. I can do a stand up act. I, I don't do much of it, but I have a parlor, parlor act that I can do. I'm a, I'm a children's entertainer. I'm a lecturer. And teacher of magic so I have a number of different hats and I realized the other day that there was one particular day where I ended up being three different types of magician all in the same day I started off at lunchtime doing an hour and a half strolling magic for adults or as family groups but mainly adults on the terrace of a cafe I then ended up later in the afternoon doing a big kid show for about 200 people in a performance tent and an event and then later on in the evening, I was running a workshop, a magic workshop, in which I was teaching a group of people sort of fundamental, basic, start-up magic-type skills. So I was a teacher, I'd been a children's magician, and I'd been a strolling magician all in the same day. And it kind of made me realise that um, when you have different things that you're supposed to be able to do, it does actually require you to p perform, but also to perhaps present stuff in in very different ways you know the difference between the close-up that I was doing for an hour and a half and about two hours later the children's show was hugely different um, the whole presentation obviously of the magic itself is very different but me as a, a personality although there are similarities naturally enough sort of inbuilt things that I uh, characteristics of my performing personality that, that will still be there 
but of course the way you present children's magic is extremely different it was this was a big show so it was it was loud and it was much more uh, theatrical really up on a stage and so on whereas the close-up is right in people's faces is up at tables with family groups and and adults much more intimate still loads of fun put in with it of course but obviously nothing like the children's show and that i think is something that we perhaps take for granted and and yet it's a, it's a it's a sort of a skill to be able to switch isn't it from one type of being one type of magician to another at the drop of a hat and that's in a way why i admire people like david copperfield who've actually got tremendous skill in lots of different areas he can present huge illusions right the way down to cabaret stuff and then down to close-up magic he's pretty good isn't he at all of them and that is quite unusual because each of them requires a very different type of person a different type of personality a different type of presentational techniques and he's one of those guys who has enough skill to be able to adapt himself and how he presents things in order to be good at all of it so i think that's quite interesting i've never really thought about it before but when it happened to have three things in one day it certainly brought it to my attention when you've been performing for many years i think sometimes it's very easy to get a little bit blasé about how good or otherwise your technique is I think particularly with close-up magic where there are elements of sleight of hand that you do almost without thinking about it after a while. But because you are repeating the same tricks again and again and again, often in quick succession, of course, if you're doing tables, going around 20 tables in an evening or something, or you've got lots of groups in a mix-and-mingle situation, then you, you, you tend to repeat the same tricks a lot of times. And although in one way that's good because you get slick at it, in another way I think there is sometimes a danger that you can become just a little bit slapdash and you stop being quite so critical of whether you're getting your angles right and whether the audience are still being completely fooled by your technique. I think I notice this particularly in the summer when I'm working outside. Normally when you do close-up magic, most of the events of course are indoors for most of the year anyway and often you'll be working in relatively dim lighting it might only be candles on tables for instance or it might be low wall lighting and that means that when you do any sleight of hand I mean even something as simple as a double lift it's much easier to get away with it because the lighting conditions are such that people even if they are looking at the in the wrong place at the wrong time it may well be that you'll be able to get away with it because it's not particularly good lighting conditions if you then take that slightly sloppy technique and you go outside in bright sunlight all of a sudden everything is in is is hugely visible suddenly you've lost this sort of cloak that's protecting you when you're indoors and everything is incredibly out in the open and you can feel actually quite exposed and if your technique is not up to it then you can start to have people spotting if you're palming stuff or whatever you happen to be doing, whatever slights you happen to be doing. So checking up on your technique from time to time is actually not a bad thing. Not very easy to do, mind, because if you just perform a trick that you do a lot in front of a mirror, probably that's redundant because it's not a proper test. 
what you really need is somebody to occasionally video you working commercially for people uh, in order for you to then sit afterwards, sit back and try and watch it and see whether you feel that what you're doing is, is OK. Or either that or get somebody who knows you well. If you're performing down the Magic Club, for instance, and you're doing something that you're quite familiar with, get them to tell you honestly, was I flashing? Or was my technique okay? And get an honest answer out of them. Because sometimes it, it's, it is only a question of, of a, a slight refinement or a reminder of certain good principles or good practice that you should be doing in order to make sure that your technique is being concealed properly. But if you're not aware that under certain circumstances you're flashing, then it could gradually get worse to the point where you really aren't doing a good job at all. And that would be a real pity. So on the one hand, as I say, it's great if you if you do tricks a lot because you get very slick at them. But on the other hand, that can then tip over into being a bit slapdash. And if that's the case, then that's really not a good thing. And it is quite a good idea, if at all possible, to check up on it. My daughter Chrissy has always been a big magic fan. And right from when she was very little, really, about seven, eight years of age, She's been often involved in the magic that I've been doing. She used to come with me and sometimes help when I went as a magic dealer to magic conventions. When I've put on various special magic events around the country, she was often there helping me organise it and helping me to do everything that I need to do on those occasions. She's seen me perform countless numbers of kids shows and other types of um, of close-up magic shows as well. And she has always um, seems to really enjoy watching magic and being part of it all. One of the things that she's often said to me, though, is that um, she's noticed, and I suppose she can make this observation because obviously as I'm her dad, she, she's known me a very long time, known me all her life, go figure, then um, she knows the moment that I start to work, how I kind of um, turn on into a performer. There's like a flick of a switch and I become a slightly different person. Obviously, yes, I'm still me, but it's a much more extrovert me. It's a performing me, if you like. And instead of being dad, I become the performer. And she says it's very noticeable to her because she knows me so well. I can be one minute, I'm dad, and the next minute, click, and now I'm the performer. And I think this is quite interesting because I think we all do have a sort of performance mode perhaps or at least I think we should have one because if you don't then your your actual mood or how you're feeling generally when you go to do a show might interfere with the quality of your performance I mean for instance to take an example let's say um, you've had a really busy day um, but you have to work in the evening and do a gig So you arrive at the gig and you're feeling pretty tired because of all the other things you've had to do during the day. Or you've driven to the gig, there's been a lot of delays, it's been very stressful driving, you're almost late, so you're really not feeling in the right mood when you arrive. Or maybe you're feeling a bit under the weather, a bit of a sore throat perhaps, headache. So you turn up with all these sort of normal mood things going on But you can't afford, really, can you, when you're being paid money to do a good job, to let those affect the way your performance is. And so that's why we all have this little switch, which we then flick on and become the performer. Because hopefully, if that performing 
aura or personality is strong enough, it will push everything else out of the way and you can go and do a good job, which I think is very important. And I think if if you don't have that, if you can't push away your real feelings, maybe it's feelings of irritation with an audience member. You can't afford to let that get in the way of the show. So your performance mode should supersede that, should overwhelm that feeling so that you end up still performing properly and in a good way. And the way my daughters notice where I turn this on and off, I'd never really thought about it until she said it. But then I realised that, yes, I do. I go into performance mode and then everything else is pushed away. And then after I finished, I go back to being just me again, which is one of the reasons why I've never enjoyed performing for friends, because my friends know the real me and the performance me is different. And I and it changes the relationship between me and those friends. And I would prefer not to have that relationship changed by doing some magic tricks for them. I'd rather just remain their friend and we just carry on like we normally do, rather than letting magic get in the way. Right, well, that's it. Thank you very much for your company. I really appreciate you taking a bit of time during the summer to, to listen to this. If you're on holiday or going on holiday, have a great time. And uh, I will hopefully be back here, all being well, in September to uh, talk about some more topics that I hope you'll find interesting. Have a good month.